Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. It's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your content. And please be sure to follow us on social media at Breast Cancer Conversations. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I love that you're tuning in, and please keep sending me those text messages and emails with your takeaways. It truly fills my heart to know that our podcast is making a difference. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, our interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. This is a passion project of love, and love it has to be. The interviews and connecting with you, our listeners, and our audience is the fun part. But there is a lot of sweat and joy that come from the relentless hours of post-production and editing we do each week to bring our podcast to life. I'd like to thank our patrons of the podcast. Patrons are folks who listen to the podcast, believe in the podcast, and support the work that we do. They make monthly contributions through Patreon. Patreon is basically a platform where you sign up for these monthly contributions, and in turn, you get access to exclusive benefits, such as access to a closed group discussion board, opportunities to ask questions for an upcoming show, or even participate in live calls. If you would like to be part of this community, go to breastcancerconversations.org forward slash support to sign up. This episode was recorded when William and I had the opportunity to visit the McGee Women's Research Institute and Foundation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We spent an entire day with the Institute's CEO, a number of their researchers, scientists, and doctors who are all passionate about the work that they do. They work in labs with patients and with advocacy groups. Today's podcast will be one in a series that we will be releasing over the next couple of weeks. In today's episode, we take a close look at the groundbreaking research taking place at McGee's Women's Research Institute. We ask questions about clinical trials, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the hope that research is providing to those who are diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm slightly obsessed with McGee, I have to say in full transparency. I had the opportunity of meeting their team last year at their Women's Health Symposium in Naples, Florida. I was blown away by their research, their commitment to women's health, And honestly, I want the world to know about them, the incredible work that they're engaged in, and how they are literally making a difference in our lives as those diagnosed with breast cancer. As a snapshot, they are covering new prevention and treatment opportunities in more than 20 clinical trials, and they are examining the vulnerabilities in triple negative breast cancer. We speak with Dr. Steffi Ostrich. Her interests include resistance to endocrine therapy, mechanisms for metastasis, and unique biology of invasive lobular cancer. We also speak with Dr. Adrian Lee. Dr. Lee's lab takes a comprehensive systems biology approach to discover how each breast cancer patient can receive treatments and therapies targeted to their specific biology and disease. Anything is possible when the country's largest women's research institute partners with a world-class women's hospital. 
we're not treating a disease, we're treating a patient, right? And that's why we partner with advocacy groups like yours, because we want to hear from that patient. We want to better understand those patient needs. And we can create things in the lab, but until we get them deployed in the communities, they're not making the impact that we hope for. So that's that's really the approach we take from the top down, is that let's start with that end in mind. Let's understand the impact we're trying to make, and let's hear from those patients as we take that journey with them, not for them. Welcome to the conversation. Uh, I'm a professor of pharmacology here at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm the co-director of the Women's Cancer Research Center. Uh, my lab is here at McGee Women's Research Institute. And uh, I'm also on the cancer biology program at the UPMC Women Cancer Center. Uh, I've been doing breast cancer research since my early graduate studies back in Germany. I have a very strong passion for it, and I love Pittsburgh. I think it's a great place to do breast cancer research here. And I think we can talk more about it later, just the proximity to the McGee Hospital and things. Excellent. And I'm uh, Adrian Lee. I'm also a professor of pharmacology. I'm married to Steffi. Also been a breast cancer researcher for probably about 25 years. So we share a lab together doing breast cancer research. I'm also director for the Institute for Precision Medicine, which is involved in this new era of precision medicine across the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC, the healthcare system. So that's not just breast cancer. That's one of the kind of the, the leaders in precision medicine, but across all diseases and all, all healthcare. Uh, Michael Anakin, I am the CEO of McGee Women's Research Institute. I have not been a cancer researcher for 25 years, but I'm certainly happy to support such brilliant researchers, not only in this building, but across campus. It used to be that you know, medicine was very paternalistic, the physician knows all and tells you what to do, and suddenly now you have patients advocating for their own care. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's actually a change for us as well, the role of advocates in Funding in peer review and deciding the direction of research is, is is a great change. And we are, yeah, no, we value that. We our research is very translational, it's very close to patients. We're giving lay talks all the time. We interact with all of the foundations here in town. We have foundations, a young woman's breast cancer foundation. We actually helped enable a advocacy group here within our own program called the Breast Cancer Research Advocacy Network. Oh, and that was started by uh, two physician scientists, Priscilla McAuliffe and Carola Newman, and then a survivor, Karen DeVito, who runs it. And they meet every month. They meet after work. <laughs> and we have actually this Saturday, they have a boot camp where they uh, once a year bring them all in and, and you know, the researchers come in and, and teach them about, you know, breast cancer diagnosis, breast cancer treatments, so that they are better able to advocate and help others and then also help in uh, promoting our grants and promoting our research and uh, now some of them have been trained by you know, project leads some of these larger organizations um, and so we I think this is now a key component of mm -hmm. not just doing our research but also getting the message out trying yeah. to you know trying to disseminate it's now it's easier now with social media obviously to disseminate but it's still an important component you know we're not stuck as it used to be in a laboratory doing our own research. Now, a lot of the things we do are very close to impacting patient care. Mm -hmm. And that's quite exciting for us. That's obviously very exciting. You know, we're very, you know, that, that, that drives us and it drives our lab forward very much. We have quite a few <coughs> evenings where we have 
people coming around the lab, showing them around the lab. Well, we've had this week having social media influencers coming around mm-hmm. uh, every day. And, but we also take the public round. Uh, we probably do that once or twice a month. And they're always fascinated. You know, they haven't been in the lab for like 20 years since they were in college. Right. And, you know, we show them breast cancer cells. We can take you down there and show you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a thriving time down there. The lab's pretty large. And those, they're just as committed as we are, the people that are in the lab. They're working long hours because they have a passion to, you know, make a difference. So, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's great. That's exactly what we've seen in your profession the, the passion, the the compassion, and that really stands out. It's quite noticeable. And I guess that's how well we've been relating with the oncologists and radiologists and psychologists and et cetera that we've been chatting with. It, the That passion comes through on both sides, and then it's a mutual feed. We were addressing nurse navigators out in, at the Las Vegas conference, and they asked us, and sorry, Michael, I'm repeating that little anecdote, but they asked us what we do. And I said, you know, realistically, you folks are the primary caregivers when active treatment ceases, PTSD starts to set in. Uh, we've spoken to 30,000 survivors, and typically every single one has said the same thing, that they're concerned about their post-active treatment life and their in in whether or not the cancer will return and so what we offer and one little anecdote with that we offer that virtual patient care platform of mutual assistance for instance and this is classic one day laura was driving to work at, at babson college which is about 18 miles due west of boston and she called me and and she was very very emotionally distraught she was crying and her mascara was running down and and I said, honey, pull off the road, take a selfie, post it immediately. Within a minute, she had 10 responses. Oh, I looked just like that last Thursday. It was unbelievable. You should have seen my mascara. And they were kind of just supporting each other in the best possible way. And as we were discussing earlier with the uh, with the folks that we were seated with, uh, marketing and whatnot, but just how tremendously supportive and how positive and how powerful that positivity is. So that's kind of what we feast on and try to support it. We don't allow the F cancer and we, we don't go that negative, that negative route because there's nothing fun about cancer. So that's what we do. Yeah, no, I think yeah. the awareness has been great for the patient. It's been great for the research as well. I mean, it's helped us. I think so. It's uh, been great for patients yeah, to realize they're not alone and you know, right. there's others going through this and like documenting your experience. It's uh, the scary thing is, I mean, and, and one of the things is having trusted websites to go to. The trouble is, you know, if you type in stuff on the internet, you get this, you know, horrific, the first thing you find is this horrific <laughs> list of things. And, you know, we point people to trusted places. I think yes. that's really important because there's a lot of hocus pocus out there and, you know, and, and it, it's a scary time and, you know, you can get sucked into this deodorant causes breast cancer and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. it's important to, 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 to make sure we're clear on that. So yeah. how do you, excuse me, uh, okay. doctor, how, how do you leverage th- those visitors from the outside that are coming into your clinic to, uh, to discuss what you're doing and discuss really what their needs are? Yeah, so there's two ways we do that. I mean, obviously, we are trying to promote the message. And I think researchers had trouble doing that. This, this uh, you know, why do we have such a low, this trouble with vaccination? The science is very clear on vaccination. It's clear on climate change, it's clear on all of these things. So we do a bad job at, at promoting that. And so we would like to do that with breast cancer. And by bringing these people through and educating them, we hope for them to be our, our advocates, be that breast cancer survivors or be that just their spouses or their, or their family members. As an example, when I spoke, I spoke at, at a Komen event in the casino here. 
about 300 <laughs> attendees. I asked how many of them have been to McGee Woman's Hospital, nearly everyone, how many have been to the Institute? There was a, a handful. Mm -hmm. And so by bringing them through, they should be aware that this is their community and this is their research and they should be proud of that. But I think the main way, the way we do that is through the advocacy organizations, because mm -hmm. those women and men are, you know, incredibly committed to it. They're willing to learn. And, you know, we need to promote things like being on clinical trials. We have yes. an incredibly low rate mm -hmm. of people that go on clinical trials. And that's the only way we learn from our treatments. The only way is through, is through doing those clinical trials. And uh, so we're the Breast Cancer Research Advocacy Network here focuses a lot on that, on trying to promote awareness that, you know, you're not a guinea pig and you're going to get standard of care plus something better. And, you know, and yeah, to try and do that. It's not measure of the numbers that I was reading. It said something around like 20 different clinical trials that people can be part of. Like the number seemed really large. I would be more than happy to help you try and promote that. There's a lot of women, especially in the breast cancer community that you know, are on the last lines of treatment and are looking for other opportunities. I mean, there it's are, really this it's has been, complex. it's complex. And this oh, has been studied in detail okay. why the rate is so low. And it's a challenging time. So patients have presented those trials at the time when things are not great. So they've either just been diagnosed or they've just progressed. So this is a hard time for the patients to understand that. The trials often have these very weird and unique little things in them that means, oh, just because you have this, you then can't be... Yes. So, for instance, many trials will eliminate patients who have had brain metastasis, for example. And so when a patient um, metastasizes the brain, suddenly now they can't be on the trial. And the physician has put in a ton of effort to try and get them on. And suddenly at the last moment, they can't. So it takes time. The physicians are super busy. They've got a lot of things to do. And it takes a lot of time to put someone on a trial. It's not easy. So there have been studies trying to say, well, what are the barriers to putting people on trials? And it, it's not one thing. It really is. It's a, it takes a real... You know, the highest rates are generally tend to be in these academic medical centers where there's a, a whole community of people who are committed to solving that problem. And it is solvable, but it, but it's not going to be solved with one. There's just one thing you can switch and suddenly everyone's going on trial. It's, uh, you know, and a lot of people obviously don't. My, my father died of uh, glioblastoma. And when I when my mom said he wasn't going on trial, I was like, you've got to be kidding. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, why would you do that? And she just wanted him to have his treatment, standard of care, and then move along. And I was like, you know, this, Okay, that's uh, that's the decision. Right. Uh, but you know, it's clear we've learned in breast cancer. We, you know, it's been a trailblazer for new therapies, new diagnosis, new treatments, and the outcomes have improved tremendously. You know, mm. We have a forty percent reduction in mortality from breast cancer since nineteen ninety. This is unparalleled. But, uh, and you know, and, but that that comes from, you know, that all comes from research. It comes from either research we do in the laboratory, and that translation to research that's done in the clinic. And, and, you know, without research, we wouldn't have made these advances. And we're probably going to make more, you know, that what you said. Lots of groups are very interested in this after you've finished endocrine therapy, either five years or 10 years. It's well, watch and wait. You're like, you hope you're cured, but you don't know. Yeah? And most women will right. say you're never cured. So we expect, and we're testing this, and many other groups are, that we will have tests that will say then, should you require extra therapy, or are you rid of your disease? Sure. You know, we will only continue to have advances in that area. And, you know, hopefully we have to you know, eliminate this. Maybe I can follow up on this, on the research, like Adrian said earlier, you know, people come to the lab and, you know, we try to teach and educate, tell them in a lay language, what is breast cancer about? What do we try to do? But I think it's equally important and it's really bi-directional for the breast cancer advocates, survivors, patients to educate the researchers. Mm. You know, over the last 10 years or so, there were fewer and fewer people going into research. 
mm-hmm. for various reasons. And, you know, we need to make sure that we have the next generation of scientists there to figure out what breast cancer is about and, you know, how to, how to cure it. And I think we have these young kids in the lab, and I think for them it really helps. They don't see patients, they are PhD researchers. Mm-hmm. For them to see breast cancer advocates, survivors, family coming through is incredibly motivating. It's not, you know, I'm just doing some cells and some drugs, but I'm actually trying to help people and make a difference. So it's a really, it's a synergistic, bi-directional interaction. And the, the students and the postdocs, they, they really get, get more motivated. It's not, I mean, they're already super motivated, right? But still to see that and see that they make an impact mm-hmm. is very, very important. Um, and we send them to like, for instance, we have something called the uh, Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition. And they have been very strong in raising money. So, for instance, they raise money through an addendum on the taxes and, and various other ways. So they fund research and they have this major meeting in, in Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania. And we send all of our students there. And it's near, it's mostly an advocate lay audience thing, but they get to see this. And it's very, uh, it is very moving for them. And, yes, and, totally. and, it, and it drives, I think that drives better research to understand. We make sure they understand the disease that, you know, if they don't understand the disease, they shouldn't be doing research. Yeah? Yes. So, and that's been very helpful. Yes. For them. So we think when they leave the lab and they go all over the U.S. and hopefully start their own groups or work with others, that they really understand breast cancer as a whole and not just here as a cell and the gene. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, another example I always like to mention this, that we work on hormone response and endocrine treatment response in general, mm-hmm. but also on a subtype of breast cancer. It's called lobular breast cancer, mm-hmm. invasive yes. lobular breast cancer. And, you know, we feel we really made an impact there. We started this actually when we moved to Pittsburgh because one of the pathologists is really an expert in this and we had an interest in endocrine treatment response because like 95% or so are all estrogen receptor positive of mm-hmm. lobular breast cancer. Start the research. A few years later, we got everybody together from the U.S. and actually internationally to come here to Pittsburgh and have a meeting. And there, it was also attended by breast cancer patients advocates. And at this meeting, they decided to start an advocacy group. Mm-hmm. To start an advocacy group. They're called Robola Breast Cancer Alliance. It came out of this meeting. They met each other and said, "Well, there's finally somebody there who realizes." This is a separate disease. Mm-hmm. We need to understand unique features. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this was so successful that there are now many more research groups studying this because they go out there and say, you guys need to do something. They have a website and I'm chairing their scientific advisory board. They meet at scientific meetings, like the biggest breast cancer meeting the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. They get together there and they really have shaken up things and put that disease on the map. And, you know, again, it involves a lot of young trainees who say, wow, you know, we can actually do something and make a yes. difference. It's been great. If it's my understanding correctly, too, the lobular is much harder to detect in traditional mammography. And one of the episodes that we have on our podcast was with a doctor who was connected to the Mayo Clinic. And we were talking about the screenings of molecular breast imaging and really trying to talk about other modalities of if this screening, I think she was giving some great statistics saying that the chances of finding it were much higher using this one particular modality, but the technology isn't widespread. Right. I think she was based in uh, New York. And out of all of the state of New York, this 
MBI was only available at her institution. So, you know, again, trying to talk about advocacy or just information about how to detect something that you know depends on your tissue and your density and the type of cancer. I think there's so many nuances that there's so much to still discover. And like Adrian mentioned earlier, the clinical trials, it is quite complex. It's the numbers are low in part due because I think they're very unique entry criteria. It's hard for the physicians sometimes in their busy schedule also to, if it's not set up perfect, if the culture isn't set up perfect, it's, it's difficult. It's a challenge. But part of it is also like for lobular breast cancer, for example, entry criteria for these trials are quite difficult because you need to have measurable disease called resist criteria. And some of the metastasis in patients with ILC, they are, you know, in the ovary. In the, in the abdomen, and they're not measurable, mm. and therefore they can't enter clinical mm. trials. And the advocates go out there now and say, we want to change it. We want to see if there are other ways to still include us in the clinical sure, trials. Work and they, yeah, and they, they push the agenda. Beautiful. That's great. One of the things we're seeing with this, like this molecular breast imaging is this co- coalescing. We have quite a large team that's working together now in terms of, and, and most places have this, where the survivorship group is working with the oncology treatment group. And so now people are thinking about, okay, I'm not just going to treat it. Then I have the, you know, the post-treatment effects and stuff. And that they then interact with the researchers who are doing this. And so you have this very interesting synergy. And so imaging used to be, you know, used to be siloed into this imaging surgery. And now there's all this movement between them where you can interact with these groups. And so I think that alongside, obviously, you know, artificial intelligence and, you know, personalizing through that. I mean, there's going to be another, they say there's this, I don't know if you've seen this thing called the fourth industrial revolution. We're sitting in the fourth industrial revolution at the moment, yeah, the integration of physics, math, biology, computers, and what. And, you know, breast cancer is probably going to be at the forefront of that. You know, the, already the decisions that physicians make are way beyond what they can know from the literature. There's already sure. too much. They need support from the computer, and this is only going to get better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to, it's probably, you know, we have to improve our Yeah, And it's so fast, you know, things move so quickly mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, scary. yeah, it yeah. is to stay on top of all Everything on social media, you know, we, I spoke in like two weeks ago, I was in China, I gave a talk, literally, it's like half an hour after my talk where suddenly someone's posted it on WeChat <laughs> and they're saying, oh yeah, your student just posted that and da, 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 da. Yeah. it's like, well, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you know, not. I think it also must give incredible hope because you think, wow, you know, I'm finishing treatment in five years, but in five years from now, oh my gosh, things will have changed so much. Yeah. You might take a little prick on your thumb and measure blood and look for changes and find other additional therapies you can take or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's incredible hope the speed of the discoveries. Yeah. In chatting with Laura during one of her downward spirals when she was really concerned about the return of cancer uh, i asked her i said well are you are you concerned about it returning in two years five years 20 years she said well 20 years i said in 20 years you're going to take a pill you won't have cancer anymore in two years might be different so a question for you with regards to folks who are wanting who are looking to volunteer for a clinical trial what should they do what avenue should they pursue Typically, I trust it's through their oncologist to reach out for something very specific as far as trials, because there's numerous trials ongoing. But what would you advise them to do? That is actually a very changing environment. So the traditional way would be through your oncologist, and that would still, I think, be the the major role. And the 
the ways to find those trials are getting better because of data. And so now in our system, we have a pretty good searchable system that a patient can search themselves. They can search on the main cancer center website for all the trials, or they can ask their physician and the physician can do it pretty fast. And those are all now annotated. They can go to clinicaltrials.gov. That has quite difficult annotation. It's Mm -hmm. not very patient friendly. And there are groups led out of uh, UCSF where they're trying to make that much more favorable to patients and make it easier. But now, you know, obviously there's a ton on social media, right? So there's this thing called the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project run out of Boston and Den Faber, which is run by social media. So any patient with metastatic breast cancer can donate their medical history or blood or tissue to that project. Mm -hmm. So that's just like social media and the internet has been disruptive to pretty much everything we do in our lives. That's a very disruptive system because traditionally it has been the university controls or the hospital system controls what's happening here, the patient saying, it could be a patient in California who's saying, I'm giving myself over to Dana-Farber. That's very unusual. Right. And I think that shows probably the change that will happen. This idea that things are siloed by institution or by choice there. It is hard, obviously, if you find a trial at Dana-Farber and you're here in Pittsburgh, well, you know, are you going to travel there? Are you going to do this infusion every week? That's obviously, that's not trivial. Can you get it it moved here? Maybe to follow up on this is the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance is just making an app for the telephone where basically you will be able, I don't know, when does that go live? I don't know. Yeah. Where you will be able to look on your phone and enter your data and see what clinical trial is, mm. is uh, you know, perfect for you. That's fantastic. Posting in communities and, you know, looking, being active and thinking about what you would like to do. There are many trials. I mean, there's lots of trials in survivorship. Sure. There's lots mm-hmm. of trials in, you know, these, you know, the arthrologists from AIs, from aromatism, for example. So, you know, there's lots of ways for women to, and men to, you know, to help. The next question that I would like to ask would be the use of artificial intelligence with regards to your clinical trials and what you're really looking at there. Yeah, so I so I, I will answer that because in the era of precision medicine, we do quite a lot in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, we are lucky here in Pittsburgh to have Carnegie Mellon University, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the two founders of artificial intelligence. And we work closely with them on a number of projects, two major ones in breast cancer, actually. One of them, uh, we were funded by the NIH for something called Big Data to Knowledge. There are 12 large centers. We have one of them here. And part of that was focused on this thing called causal modeling, which comes out of like the uh, philosophy, actually, in that, you know, you can have two things that are correlated, but that doesn't mean one is causing the other. You've probably heard this in the lay literature. And so there are algorithms and artificial intelligence to try and figure out is X causing Y rather than it just being uh, uh, correlated with Y. So we do that in breast cancer, trying to say, if we could understand all of the, the derangements in your, in your breast cancer, all of the molecular changes and genetic changes, could we link that to drug response, for example? And we actually had a guy speak here yesterday, actually, uh, in the Institute about that. We also have a, uh, just finished a grant from the Pennsylvania Department of Health. So they funded a joint project between Carnegie Mellon and us to use uh, similar kind of computational techniques, again, in breast cancer, to try and understand, take your electronic health record data and then your genomic data, and then try and predict outcomes. And hopefully we're gonna report that soon. So I think it will be embedded in all areas. It, it, it's clearly, we're in an era of big data science where we can, can generate more data than we can ever generate knowledge from. Mm-hmm. And so just like, you know, you're using, you probably used Waze or Google Maps this morning, similar, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have a map 
of all of the changes that are in your breast cancer. We're already pretty close to having that, but that map's going to get better and more refined. It's going to show all these different routes that that cancer's using, and we're going to say, okay, let's cut that one off. And we'll be able to hopefully predict that it won't become resistant because it won't be able to take that other street because we've already blocked that one off. And we already have a pretty good idea about this. We have quite large programs that are using artificial intelligence to kind of map out these pathways and then say, okay, these are the ones that will be sensitive or resistant. We have two areas here where we specifically have investigators working on this. One's on imaging, mm -hmm. right, to take the vast amount of data in imaging and apply artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithm. And the other is that because the healthcare system here is rather large, UPMC, over the last 20 years, they have seen more than like 52,000 breast cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing amount of data. And to see, to analyze it again with machine learning algorithm and see if there are patterns of disease may be associated even to you know, specific regions mm -hmm. in the Pittsburgh area will be very powerful. Very nice. Feel kind of speechless. Like this is amazing. <laughs> no, it's Wait. exciting to ask. I mean, I think it should, and patients should be encouraged by this. I mean, just yes. like, just like if you look back, you couldn't predict what you were doing twenty years ago with email, for example, it's taking over your life. Yeah, uh, you didn't <laughs> yes. predict that. You, I don't think we can predict in twenty years what we would be doing. Right. But if you go back forty years, we were doing radical mastectomies. Mm -hmm. yeah? So we were disfiguring women. Many of them were dying from the actual surgery. Sure. That right. person who changed that to lumpectomy and radiation was actually from Pittsburgh. He died a couple of weeks ago. He was 101, Bernie Fisher. Fisher. He transformed how we treat breast cancer. And it was, you know, it, it took a pioneer to do that. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, as Steffi said, one of the exciting things we work on, and lots of groups work on, is this idea of liquid biopsies. So cancer cells, when they die, shed things into blood. Mm -hmm. And so now rather than say you have a metastasis in your liver or your lung, rather than having to prod that, we can possibly take blood and get a representation of it. This would somewhat be the holy grail. Yes. Because obviously no one wants to give a liver biopsy. Right. The beauty of it is you can do it every week or every month. Wow. So we now, on every patient in our clinic uh, across the street, UPMC, Hospital, we take blood of every progression of every patient with advanced breast cancer. And now we measure their mutations in their blood. Wow. With the idea for research, with the idea of kind of trying to understand the natural history of the disease. And then can we ask these questions about why are some progressing fast? Why are some not responding to therapy? Why are some becoming resistant? Uh, that's a, that only all happened within the last like five years. Wow. That's brilliant. brilliant. Yes, it's Absolutely. a totally new concept. Yes. And this comes from, you know, it comes from research, obviously. It comes from computers, from big data analytics, from miniaturization, from sequencing. You know, these are, yes. these are all things that researchers, you know, engineered. And, and you know, we're super excited. It, it will give us a totally new view on tumors because at the moment our view is one static time point when we took it out that's it right and maybe once more and you probably only had one surgery or one biopsy you sure. may have had another one we've never done it more than that we take blood every month yeah there's nothing to stop you doing that that's the advantage of having the large research institute that we have here. Being the largest research institute in the United States focused on women's health, we're able to pair up what was previously considered NIPT technology, right? I mean, this is not available prenatal testing technology that we're using in cancer diagnoses. We're hoping to expand on this and, and bring it into a diagnostic test for ovarian cancer, which has a 95% mortality rate, right? So we're hoping that the conversion 
convergence that we're able to generate here uh, will enable us to move the needle much faster and accelerate that process in discovery. But I hope that you also gathered from the conversation that we're not treating a disease, we're treating a patient, right? And that's why we partner with advocacy groups like yours, because we want to hear from that patient. We want to better understand those patient needs. And we can create things in the lab, but until we get them deployed in the communities, they're not making the impact that we hope for. So that's that's really the approach we take from the top down, is it? Let's start with that end in mind. Let's understand the impact we're trying to make and let's hear from those patients as we take that journey with them, not for them. I love that. I love that. And I, you know, when I was going through my own diagnosis prior to cancer, I was pretty healthy. You go in for like your one year physical. I was vegan at the time. I was working out. I feel like I was the poster child of health. And then all of a sudden I got diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm like, I eat all the kale in the world. Like, how did this happen? And, you know, I was fit and healthy. And then all of a sudden I'm realizing it's not a perfect science. Like for the longest time, I thought you go to the hospital, you get fixed, you get cured. Like I wasn't very much exposed to cancer. And then to go through different chemotherapies, you know, being kind of like the A-type myself, I was like, oh my gosh, my doctor, my oncologist is always tweaking, always changing like a measurement of something and really adapting to how my body was responding literally week by week by week. And so I like to share with our listeners and our community members, like, let go of feeling like you need to be in control because the science is moving so quickly mm-hmm. and we're all trying to figure it out. So I think what you're, you're helping us shed light on, we don't know the answer, but we're tracking it and we're trying to figure it out because there's plenty of us on this side of the table who are like, we just want to know why we need closure. And there's a lot of information we still don't know and trying to wrestle with that. Um, it stays with us. It lingers. One of the points that we've heard from a number of physicians that we're speaking to is the burnout issue with regards to medical teams. And when you start speaking about something so exciting as as, as these brilliant uh, uh, changes and adaptations to your your approach towards research how do you avoid that kind because it's really exciting and you can roll up your sleeves and just work 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 so how do you counter that yeah no this is a this is a, a huge problem at the moment is trying to educate the workforce as michael just said you can create as many great new tests as you want but if the physician doesn't understand the test Mm -hmm. Uh, this is never going to get implemented and never used. And we find this with genetic sequencing. Mm -hmm. Most of our physicians don't have a great training in these new genetic tests we can do. And so they're worried about using them and and it's causing challenges to them. They've got to learn all this and it's slowing down their practice. And so it really takes a team effort to try and, and we spend a lot of time trying to educate physicians about precision medicine, nurses about precision medicine, the public about precision medicine, even the laboratory scientists about precision medicine. But that, I think, is, a, is going to be a hard thing to overcome. It's, it's just like everything in your life. You're worried about, you know, you know, our kids. When I see our kids using social media, they're, they're like flipping through all these things. And I don't know how to do that. They need <laughs> to teach us how to, you know, use Slack. Exactly. So I think, uh, you know, that I think educating is going to be a major thing moving forward. I mean, just the use of, if you look at how the electronic health record's being used, the mm-hmm. use of artificial intelligence, it's they, you know, this is very disruptive to how physicians work. And, you know, the burnout, as you said, the burnout rate is very high in, in the clinic and uh, they need to be helped to, to make them be the most efficient they can because that's super important. Well, we are on the research side, right? We are PhD researchers and the problem of burnout is equally strong. I, bet. I think it's a very 
competitive field. Mm -hmm. I think it is people work very hard. People work very hard because they love it. They're committed to it. People, some people work very hard because there's a fear of not having enough funding next year to do your research. Mm -hmm. NIH funds like the NCI funds like 8% of grant application. That means you submit 12 to get one funded. Mm -hmm. And that just results in somewhat competitive nature of research. And in the breast cancer field, I think we know most of the people. People are very interactive. People collaborate. People share data early on. There's a lot of push now for data sharing even before you publish it. Mm -hmm. Transparency, make it up, put it out in the public. But still, I think people walk around the clock. Mm. And I think for us as uh, you know, overseeing groups, it's quite a big priority to make sure the young students and postdoc, there is some well-being there for them mm -hmm. to say, you need to take off a week. You can't work 24-7. That's not good because you will not remain a productive researcher if you do this for a few years. You will just say, this is not what I'm going to do. I think that plays on us as well to really make sure people uh, take care of themselves and take a break and step back for a while and then come back with relaxed and with fresh ideas. That's a very good idea. I did a paper years ago in one of my corporate existences called the deleterious side effects of excessive overtime. And I got laughed out of the corporate uh, uh, headquarters for it. But it was based on uh, Labor Department statistics that said after like eight weeks of 60 plus hours a week, you're now as effective as if you were working 35 hours a week, even though you're still working 60 because you're tired. Right. Your brain doesn't function as well and your body doesn't. And we're hearing that an awful lot <laughs> lately. It's coming up in virtually every... Uh, podcast recording that we're doing with the uh, with the medical field. Yeah. The report just two days ago, Microsoft just tried a four-day work week mm -hmm. and saw productivity went up. I bet it did. So yeah, Maybe we should talk to Michael about some insights <laughs> 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 for the Institute. You know, I, I thought Friday actually... Would be yeah, good. I guess these guys who are building that building across the street, you know they don't work Fridays. Oh, really? They only work Monday to Thursday. I did not know that. I see that because I'm next door. Oh, you know, every Friday you just get a yoga instructor and from 8 to 9 a.m. get I think something I think we need to try to think about that people, their mental health and their physical health is being taken care of in a very fast moving uh, competitive field. The European model seems to uh, sustain that. Uh, and they think we're crazy, especially on the East Coast of the United States. The West Coast thinks we're crazy too. But, uh, from, from that perspective of uh, working ourselves to the bone, it's just. Yeah, it's not probably conducive to that end result that we're looking for, even though we're, we all try to roll up our sleep. We do the same thing. We'll work till midnight a lot of nights on this. That's very fun. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's it, passion, though, too. It's too passion. That's, yes, why, totally. that's why I'm saying that. It, it's, it's, it's certainly easy to see how you can be so very passionate because of the developments. And that was going to be one of my questions with regards to the sharing of data with, yes. with your associates, even though you're still going to be competing with them indubitably for funds from NIH and whoever, um, there seems to be a lot more of that. And there seems to be a lot, lot more transparency that we're seeing. Absolutely. I think now a lot of the journals, when we publish, right, they uh, actually two things happen. One is when you publish, you want all the data co-submitted to the journal. It's all out there. Other people can you know, redo the analysis and stuff. And then the other thing is that very often, even before publication, 
you now just put your data online for mm -hmm. other people to see. And there are a lot of initiatives at institutions, at uh, funding agencies to have earlier transparency and only earlier data sharing. Um, I think, Adrian, you might want to comment on that because I think Adrian uh, is going to start one of, one of these initiatives for early data sharing. But, you know, I think that is super critical. And I think in the end, it's a relatively small community. You know, after a few years, you get to know everybody and people need to work together. And if you don't play game, I think you will not be in the breast cancer research community long. Mm -hmm. so this happened in the era where this big data era where we generate more data than we can ever possibly use. Mm -hmm. And that if you made that publicly available, others could make use yeah. of it. So there was this guy, Chuck Peru, who was the guy that really started molecular profiling of breast cancer. Mm. He wrote this article that said, we should all share all our data. And there's lots of people that don't believe in this. But he said, we should put it out there because others will uh, make use of it. So that's now become the standard. You can hear there's a, uh, there's a big fire engine behind us. But um, that's now become relatively the standard. So, for example, we are the data coordinating center here for a large program sequencing advanced breast cancers. So it's a nationwide program. It's funded by the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Centers send their tumors to the central place. They sequence them. All the data comes here, and then we kind of serve that up and it will be served off very soon for public consumption. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of, you know, that's an incredible team effort. Yeah, yes. that's uh, an incredible effort to pull this together. And uh, no, that's, I think that's now the new norm, hopefully. Wonderful. Wonderful. Good. Thank you so much for our time. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.